Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership. Join us to explore lessons in leadership that demonstrate how you can live in the center of God's will. All right, today it is my privilege to have Sam Wallace on the show today, and uh, he is the Senior Museum Coordinator at the Atlanta Braves. Not a bad gig if you can find it. That's, that's right. Uh, hopefully nobody else finds it because <laughs> I'm the only one that there is. So. That's right. You're the, you're the number one. That's I would it. like to not give that up anytime soon. <laughs> All right, so, so I'm fascinated. Kind of, we, we had a chance to meet last year when I had a group of kids come out and tour the stadium and uh, you showed them the new trophy and it was pretty exciting to be able to see the kids. And I do have to point out, and I know a lot of people listen to this on Spotify and Apple and all that kind of stuff. You're going to miss out on the joy of the ring. That's right. Uh, But Sam is sporting some serious weight today. So those of you who do watch the show on YouTube, you get to actually see it, but uh, we'll drive some business to YouTube. Yeah, there we go. So, so you would walk, you'd walk with a limp with that thing on. Yeah. It can't be an everyday thing. It's a, weigh me down hurt hurt my fingers a little bit to wear it every day but um it still hadn't lost its shine so I still get to wear it uh, it's funny when I started I'm sure we'll talk about but when I started working for the Braves uh it was in 2000 right uh and when you when you win the National League and you go to the World Series everybody gets a ring you get them whether you win or lose the World Series and so the Braves had been to the World Series in 1991 leading up to right and so they had rings all the time so when i started working for the team in 2000 everybody said oh you're gonna love it here we get rings every year and we go <laughs> and so i went to work in 2000 and i waited 21 years to get my ring oh so, my goodness yeah it's, pretty, it's still special to me and uh, I'll, I'll wear it uh, yeah. as often as i can, yeah, I can right. take I, it i'd be i'd be wearing it my like sleeping and looking at it oh i, I told my <laughs> wife all the years leading up to it i said if, you know if i win this i'm never taking it all that's right and she thought that was silly and she turns out she was right, but I, I had no idea the, you know, they, they've gotten bigger over the years. Yeah, they so. are enor- enormous, enormous. All right. So, so I, I did love, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about the idea of, of, of really students. I mean, trying to prepare students for the idea of walking into what life is going to look like and recognizing that you can be a leader in your sphere of influence and you don't have to minimize your faith. You're a great example of that. But I also love your story is so unique from the perspective of you had this crazy lunatic dream, which you are now literally living out. And so with your story, I think I I think I have to kind of walk a little bit chronologically. Tell me how you jumped in to the Braves. I already know the story, but it's a cool story. Um, and, and what that looked like. T- take me back to the very beginning with the kind of job that you took because you had to take it. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I had no idea what I was going to be. I figured out in about fourth grade, I wasn't playing first base for the Braves. And so but I'd always wanted to be in baseball and I didn't know what that looked like. You know, now kids can go major in sports administration and say, I'm going to work in sports. We didn't have anything like that when I was growing up. So I had no idea how to get into sports, but it was my passion. So that's what I wanted to do. So when I graduated from college, I wrote letters to the Braves, the Hawks, and the Falcons and said, I'd like to go to work for you. And I got a call from the Braves. They interviewed me two weeks after I graduated college, and I went for a job interview. I'm like, this, this is great. This is, <laughs> uh, and I went and I interviewed. I got a job working in the merchandise warehouse. Okay. So for th- that season, I folded T-shirts and I shipped pencils and posters and all the merchandise that we sold uh, through our, either our catalog or our mail-in uh, requests. And I did that for a year. I worked in the merchandise warehouse, but I was working for the Braves. 
And my idea was, obviously, I can't do this forever, but this I'm in. So I did that for a season. I was a seasonal worker. When the season ended, then my job was over. And they called me and asked me to come back the next year. And I thought, you know, at this point, I can't do this forever. I'm going to be getting married. I can have something that's steady. So I said, I'll come back under the condition that you got to help me find a full-time job. And they said, okay, well, sounds like a good deal. We'll we'll do that. And we'll look out for something full-time for you. So I did go back to the merchandise department, worked there for about another month or so. And they said there's an opening in the museum at Turner Field. We have a museum inside the ballpark uh, overseeing tours. Phenomenally well done. Tours of the ballpark. It's just beautiful. So that's when I I jumped on that, went and interviewed there. I got that job working in the museum uh, where I would oversee tours, which is, you know, I didn't really particular interest in tours, but tours where we're talking about baseball uh, seemed to fit me. So I, I worked, I went and worked there. And because it, the museum took care of all the history of the Braves, uh, that's right up my alley because I spent my entire life watching the Braves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took to that and was able through throughout the years to move. I still, still oversee tours, but less and less in the day-to-day tour operations and more into the history of the team uh, to the point where now I'm the historian for the team and I handle all the history in the archives, which is the fun parts. So let me pause just because you, you mentioned like you've been watching the Braves mm-hmm. I, only because I, I, I work with Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I understand kind of the, you, you take watching the Braves to kind of a brand new level. Like, we, so, so kind of, kind of walk us through what it is to be a true Braves fanatic because you were one before you got the job. Sure. So um, basically my routine growing up was when I would come home from school, uh, the Cubs were always on TV during the day because they didn't have lights at Wrigley, Wrigley Field until 88. So they always had day games, and they had a national network. They were on WGN. So I would come home from school, and I'd watch the Cubs game. And I didn't like the Cubs. I'd pull for whoever they were playing against. But I'd watch that Cubs game, and that would go until dinner time, And then right after dinner, the Braves would start. And at my house, we watched the Braves every night. That was just, And that's the beauty of baseball is it's an everyday thing uh, for six months of the year. And so that was just our schedule worked around baseball. And so I would watch the Cubs game eat dinner, watch the Braves game, and go to bed. And that was my routine every day. Uh, my dad's a huge Bra- Braves fan, baseball fan. Um, that just were in our family. So my sister is, I am. And we, we ordered our lives around around the, the baseball season. So, yeah, I, I'm, the first season I remember watching was 1982. I remember watching that season and all those players and every season since. So it's gotten easier as I've gotten older where we can record games and make sure I don't miss anything. Right. Uh, and so I've taken that kind of, um, some would call it passion, some would call it an obsession, you know, a little psychotic, but I've passed that on to my children now. They're the same way. That's great. And so um, my sweet wife orders our life around every half inning. Whenever she asks the children to do something, it's always, okay, I'll do it after this half inning. <laughs> and, and she tolerates that. And uh, so uh, that's sort of the way our, our family has worked. It's gone to another that generation. Awesome. I love kind of the fanaticism of that, but also just in such a healthy, a healthy pursuit. You know, there are worse things you could be following. So... <laughs> All right, take me back to the gig, though, because we kind of high sped through. In the merchandise, a, a year and a couple of months, mm-hmm. the next one, you challenge them with this idea of find me a full-time gig. Walk me through, because, I mean, becoming the historian wasn't just an overnight thing. Sure. So walk me through what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, well, part of the deal, though, is you, to make an ultimatum of I'll come back, but you got to help me, is I had to have some value. Mm-hmm. So uh, part of the, the learning process for me was, I don't want to work in a warehouse the rest of my life, but I better do a good job at what's in front of me or else I'm not going to get another chance or something better. Great lesson. And so I had to learn how to fold t-shirts to the glory of God. Like I got to do this in such a way that they would want me to do it again. 
So that was part of it. And then when I get sent to the museum, uh, the museum housed all the history of the Braves, so all the artifacts. Uh, we had more than uh, 6,000 artifacts in that little museum mm-hmm. in Turner Field, um, as well as all the photo. And, you know, that was something I took too easy because I had the history with it. And so I didn't have to learn the history. I knew it. And I was able to contribute to, hey, we're going to do a new exhibit. What should we do? Well, I got all kinds of ideas because these are things I think about going to sleep every night. This mm-hmm. is not something I'm trying to learn. So they'll be able to take that passion and put it into the work. Um, I would have an aptitude for it. And when you're good at something, then not only do you enjoy it, but you tend to do a better job. Mm-hmm. And so because it was fun for me, then I can now take all of those uh, projects that have to be done and they don't seem like work to me. They seem like fun. And when you enjoy it, then you do a better That's job. Right. So, Absolutely. so yeah, I, I started working in the museum. We're doing tours of the stadium. I'm helping write the script for the tours. You know, all the different places you're going to visit, all the things you're looking at. Um, anytime something comes up with, and this is the, the great thing about baseball, is baseball fans are so passionate about history, mm-hmm. more than other sports, really. Like I agree. Football, everybody's about you know, this season, next season, you remember the old guys, but the numbers don't quite mean as much. Baseball is obsessed with our history and our numbers. And everybody that plays now is compared to everybody that went before them. And so the history of the team is really important. And that's a way we connect with our fans. Even now, I do an orientation presentation for every new hire that we hire, no matter what their job is, whether an accountant or whether they're in sales or whatever they're in, I go over a history of the entire history of the team for them so that they can embrace. And that's part of your job. Yes. And so that every employee Mm. of the team will embrace our history and know this matters to our fans, so it better matter to me. Not players as well. They'll do it for players. Right. Uh, Unless they ask. I have done it for players. Players are interested. We'll we'll walk them through the stadium and show them the exhibits and the history, and some are more into it than others, but... Typically, there's something for everybody. But the full-time employees, if you're going to work for the Braves, you're going to have an appreciation for our history. Okay. And so that's kind of a fun uh, deal, too. But, again, that came out of working in the museum where the history okay. was built in. And working in the museum, does that take place your whole second year in the organization? Yes. So I started okay. in the museum, and I stayed in the museum until we moved out of Turner Field. Okay. Uh, my office was in, actually in the museum itself. And, you know, the Braves surprised the world when they announced they're moving to Cobb County. Right. Uh, surprised everybody, including the employees. There were about really? there were a handful of people that knew. That was it. It was the best kept secret in the history of the world. Wow. And it had to be. It had to be in order to pull it off. But it was done really well. So I found out same time everybody else. Actually, the morning of the announcement that we're moving to Cobb County, and it didn't make too big a difference for me. I'm a Gwinnett County guy. I've lived here my entire life. So the drive to Cobb County is not any different to me than going downtown. It was just. Different route, sure. same same distance. But when I found out we're moving to Cobb County, uh, we had all kinds of planning meetings, and I sat down with the architects and they asked, uh, "All right, tell us about what the museum's going to look like in the new ballpark." No we're, kidding. We're going to make a ballpark, so tell me what, which one. Who, who gives you that invite? Like who who even puts you at that table? Well, there's going to be, uh, you know, everything's taken into consideration. We have a ballpark. We're going to make a new one. How do we take what's good about this one and put it in the new one? Oh, and cool. so I get asked, you know. We know we're going to do this ballpark village around the ballpark. So the architects had this idea. Space is going to be at a premium. Let's take the museum and put it outside the ballpark. And I was adamant, absolutely not. There's no way. It has to be in the ballpark. Because I had known from my colleagues around the league that uh, Cincinnati has a huge museum, like a multi-story. It's, it's probably the biggest baseball museum outside of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Hmm. But theirs is outside, and they really struggle to get people to come. 
people will walk right past the museum because they're there to watch a ball game and they're That's going right. in the ballpark. Yeah. And so I knew their story and how much trouble they had had keeping up paying for their museum because they couldn't get people to drive attendance. So I insisted new ballpark has to have a museum and has to be in the ballpark. I went away real proud of myself found out a few months later they decided little space is at a premium. And so if it has to be in the ballpark, we're not going to have a museum. And I thought, Oh, wow. oh no, I overplay, <laughs> overplayed my <laughs> hand a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it actually, we don't have a museum at the new ballpark. Instead, what we did was took that history that we had in a confined area at Turner field and we've spread it all over the ballpark at Truist park. And so everywhere you go, every level, every place you walk, we have displays and artifacts so you can't miss it. Right. There were people who went to games at Turner Field every year and never knew we had a never museum. Seen it, yeah. Just didn't know it existed because right. it, you had to go to a specific place. Now, anywhere you go in Truist Park, you see something about our they history. They made the right decision on it. They did, and yeah. it actually worked out beautifully for me because when we were at Turner Field, anytime the ballpark was open, somebody had to be in the museum. Right? We have all these artifacts. They have value. In order for the museum to be open, somebody has to be running that. So I had game day responsibilities. I had to be there during games. We had special events. I had to be there to make sure that the museum was taken care of. And the way the ballpark's set up now, I have kind of wound it up and let it run, and I don't, I don't have to be always present, mm-hmm. which is such a great uh, benefit for me. Right. So I like it a lot better. I didn't plan it that way. Uh, I probably, probably overplayed my 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 hand on that about what the museum should look like, but it worked out great for me. And you were just—I mean—you were a fairly new employee at that point. Well, no, we moved. We moved to out of Turner Field in 2016 was our last year there. Okay. So I'd been around for 15 years at that okay. point. Okay. All right. So you had some real vesting. Um, when do you become the historian? And tell us about that story because they had never had a historian, if I remember originally. When we yeah, talked. that's that's right. Um, ultimately, again, because that's the part of my job that I enjoyed the most: telling the stories of our history, uh, being aware of. Uh, the, the stories. Baseball, really, we're not all about numbers. We're about the characters that make the mm-hmm. numbers, too. And so I love to be able to tell the story of the history of the team. And so I, I set about trying to figure out how am I going to spend more of my time on that? Because ultimately, baseball's a business. And so I can tell somebody how much I love, how much I know about the Braves, and that'll be really impressive until they say, is it making us any money? Right, right. right. So... Uh, I said about my mission over the years saying I will do the part of my job that brings the revenue in. And once I've accomplished that, I'll spend my other time on what I enjoy, right? The, the, my favorite parts of the job about the history. And as the years have gone by, I have worked into ways that I can take our history and make it productive. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I ultimately convinced the, the organization that it's beneficial to you to have someone who is dedicated to the history. What did that sales job look like? Uh, it's been a long process. It's still ongoing, really. The, the definition of my role changes year to year, and the more that I can show this has value to the organization, then the more time I spend on that. And so there are new things every year that we do. Uh, we're actually we're talking about now uh, producing a game show. Really? We're going to do a game show. It's sort of like a trivia game show where we let fans compete against me for, let's talk about Braves history. In the game? Uh, we'll do, we may do it pre-game, like okay. out, in the, out in the plaza before the game starts. We may do it online, uh, ultimately build up to, you know, like a big event that we maybe do at, at Braves Fest in the, okay. in the spring. But it's an opportunity to, uh, because our fans are so passionate, right? And we'll have this game show where was, I'll take on a fan and 
I'm going to beat them because I know more about Brave Sisters than anyone. <laughs> like I've made that my my expertise. What if your sister goes on? Is who yeah, wins there? Well, I would smoke her. <laughs> but here's the thing: I will I will be able to. Anytime you watch a game show like that where someone's taking on the expert, everybody thinks, oh, I could beat that guy. Right. right? And so right. that's the that's the draw. And so... Uh, you know, I like that. It's a great idea. And, th- and it's fun. This yeah. is a fun thing. Another yeah. one uh, that's new in the past couple of years, and this is really a fun part of, of my job, is uh, I do an event about 10 times a year with Dale Murphy. Okay. All right. So I grew up in the 80s. Uh, when it, I grew up here. And when I was in school as a kid, nobody ever asked you, who is your favorite player? Right. Like, it was a silly question because Dale Murphy was everybody's answer, right? You could ask who your second favorite player was. Sure. You'd get a variety, but Murph was the guy, right? So um, all of my years as a kid growing up, he was Superman. And so we've got an event now where about 10 times a year, he and I do a presentation to fans no where they bring him in. Uh, they go to his, he has a restaurant right across the, from the stadium. They spend the day with him at the restaurant and then he brings them over. And they get to watch the game with him. But before the game starts, I will go up and he and I will do a history presentation. And I'll tell about the history of the team and the ballparks. And we've got a nice little um, kind of flow working out where I know how to set him up to tell his stories. And he knows what questions to ask me. And, that's so cool. and then we do a, a stump. And working with one of And I get heroes. to work with the guy that I watched like, my whole like life. That's amazing. And he and I have become good friends now. And... I would never, you know, when I was four, he was the greatest thing in the world. And now, yeah, I, I mean, just to, them, that's so. living the dream. It is. I mean, that, really that is. is literally living the dream. Sure. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't feel a lot like work. Right. Uh, and I talk about that a lot about, you know, we're going to spend, you spend most of your life at work, right. your, your adult life. You spend, right. you know, whatever it is, 70% of your work week or your week is work. And so it better be something that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Otherwise mm-hmm. you end up spending your entire life longing for the weekend and right. wasting your life. So right. uh, the line between what's work for me and what's play, the, the fuzzier I can make that line, the better, because it means I enjoy what I do. Well, and the more that your work is a calling, the less it feels like work. Yeah, I and mean, I think that goes back to what we were talking about with aptitude. Right. Think something, find something that you're good at, right. and then it doesn't feel so much like right. uh, you know, a chore. Yeah, I've, I've always told my students, find something you're good at and find what you enjoy. And at the intersection of that, there's not one job, there's probably 40, you know. But but trying to find that, then then you're never working a day in your life. For sure. You and, know? and not only that, but you, uh, the, those things tend to run, you're going to find more than one because you tend to enjoy things you're good at. Right. Uh, you know, I don't play golf right. at all because I'm terrible at it. And so because I'm so bad at it, I find no enjoyment in it. So that's not something I pursue. But I think that it, when you find things that you have an aptitude for, you tend to have more enjoyment because you have more success. Right, right. Now, has the awe of just being around the players all the time, has that, has that worn off? Some. Okay. Uh, I, I don't really get ex- too excited about seeing a player. You know, I can walk down the hall and have a player pass by me and it doesn't, right. you know, I don't, I don't chase after him or anything. Right, I'm right. not allowed to, but I also wouldn't. <laughs> so, th- yeah, some of that has, has become normal. Um, you know, but there are still exciting moments. Right. Uh, there are things, you know, we, we had inducted Joe Torrey into our Hall of Fame last year, so I spent the day with him, walking him around. And this is a guy I don't see very often. And this is a guy who's one of the last links to the Milwaukee days. Mm-hmm. Right? There aren't a lot of guys who are still alive from those days. And so I wanted every minute I could have with him to ask the stories to get the firsthand account. Because, so cool. again, I'm responsible for telling the history, the story of our team, of right. our history. And so any kind of firsthand account I can get, that's gold for me. And then are you then documenting those stories in, in some type of a system? I should. Um, I tend to rely on my memory, um, okay. I, which is 
maybe not the most efficient way to do it, but that's sort of the way my brain works. I'm more of a, if it's interesting to me, I'll remember it. Sure. Uh, I was never a big note taker in school. I was not a, well, I wasn't a great student because it had to be interesting to me. If it was interesting, sure. I would not forget it. Right. If it wasn't interesting, it wouldn't matter how many notes I took. It wasn't going to stick. So that's, um, I do keep notes. I, I have, um, my ambition is to have notes on um, sort of a mini biography on every player we've ever had. Hmm. Now we've had 2,108 players in Braves history. No kidding. Going back to the Boston and Milwaukee era. So uh, that's, a, that's a big, long-term goal. And it's something that uh, I have to look forward to. Mm-hmm. A project that I'm not going to finish anytime and then wonder, what am I going to do next? That's something I can work on my entire career, but it's also something that is, gives me something to shoot at. Right. And, and it's that, that's excites me to go to work to say, who can I add to my list today? So tell me, tell me a little bit about the, the history with the Boston connection. That was one thing that as, as we've toured the stadium each time, uh, you know, I spent 12 years in the Boston area. My wife is from the Boston area and I didn't realize how many connections there were from, from Atlanta to Boston. Uh, even the, I, I had, I had really good seats at one of them and I was going up some sort of a private elevator and the whole thing was a Boston elevator. I was like, cut it out. This is amazing. Yeah. So, so, so walk me back, but tell me about that. We talk about all the time that the Braves are the longest continuously operating franchise in baseball history. That's kind of a proud thing. We're the longest operating franchise there is. And if you say that enough times, eventually someone will argue with you and tell you, ah, oh, the Reds were the first team. And, and that's true. The Reds were the first professional team, but then they went out of business for a time. So okay. the Braves are the longest continuously operating franchise. The Braves started in 1871 mm-hmm. in Boston. They were the Boston Red Stockings. And we stayed the Red Stockings up through the 1880s. We changed names in the 1880s, went to the Bean Eaters. That was a little civic Sounds pride like for Boston awful, town, right? right? Boston's been Bean Town right. since the sure, Revolutionary bean War, town, so yeah. we were bean, the Bean Eaters. And if that didn't scare people enough, the next name was <laughs> Doves. Okay. We were the Doves for a while, really intimidating sports yeah, names, right? Yeah. Uh, we were the Rustlers for a year. We became the Braves in 1912, the Boston Braves. So we were actually in Boston for the first 80 or so years of our franchise history. Hmm. Didn't leave Boston until 1952. Where were the Red Sox during that period? The Red Sox didn't come along until 1900. Okay. So the Braves were the only team in town in Boston for from 1871 to 1900. Okay. Uh, we, the Boston supported two teams. We had the Braves and the Red Sox uh, side by side from 1900 to 1952. Ultimately... The Braves left town because the Red Sox were winning that battle. Okay. The Red Sox had a better ballpark, had better stars, more success. So the fans went there. So they, the Braves were the first really professional sports franchise to relocate. Hmm. Went to Milwaukee oh, in 1953. No well, were the Milwaukee Braves from 1953 to 65, and then moved to Atlanta in 66. In 66. That's 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 pretty that's pretty interesting. I didn't realize that they were the first ones to relocate as well. Yeah, in fact, when when the team moved from Boston to Milwaukee and survived the move, I mean, Milwaukee was the furthest west anybody was at that point. Okay. St. Louis had been the furthest west team in the major leagues until till that move. So when the Braves moved to Milwaukee and were able to survive the move, that opened teams' eyes that we don't we're not stuck in the cities we're in. And the Dodgers and Giants both left New York and went to the West Coast within a few years after. No kidding. Um, I know that when we were when we were in the stadium together, we were talking a little bit about some of the players, and you were just telling some stories of just some of the incredibly nice players that you've worked with, and I I, I just I really liked some of those stories. Sure. T- tell us tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we we see the players on TV, or we see them in a game where we're up here and they're down there, and we make them larger than life. Um, but they're just guys. They're just play. You know, they're just people and. Um, 
they have to be a little bit separated because there's such demand for their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some players go out of their way to just be uh, personable, right? They know I can take a couple of minutes and sign some autographs and make someone's day. And some of them take that seriously and, and say, you know, that's something I feel honored to do and I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Others think, eh, I'm busy, I'm doing my own thing. And that's okay, there's no obligation on sure. them. Yeah. But the guys who are that way, uh, the, their following is incredible. Um, the most the most obvious choice for that is Charlie Culberson. Right, Charlie Culberson was with us for a few years, uh, went away. Just, he was always one of those reserve guys, a utility guy, the last guy on the bench. Um, d- didn't have a role necessarily with the team, so he went away, played for the Rangers for a few years. We actually brought him back at the beginning of this season. He signed a minor league deal. He's a guy who's been in the league for a decade. Mm. Signed a minor league deal because he wanted to live here. Wow. Right? Uh, so he went to Gwinnett, started the year with the Stripers. We called him up a few weeks ago, and I've never seen anyone celebrate the 26th guy on the team as much as he was celebrated <laughs> because everybody loves that guy. Everybody, the teammates, the front office, the game day staff, and the fans, because this is a guy who will go out and he will sign as long as they will let him. Like, they have to stop him from signing autographs, tell him, hey, the game's starting, you're going to have to go sit okay. down now. And we, we've had events. We did a, we did a Hall of Fame induction one of our first years at Truist Park. And at these Hall of Fame inductions, we would sell tickets to it. They have 500 guests would come, would pay, and they would have one player at each table. So you'd have 10 people at a table who bought tickets, and they'd have a player at their table. Right? Cool. And they'd pay for the opportunity to sit with a player at the right. ceremony. Right. But we would ask them, you know, don't ask for autographs at this. This is kind of a formal event. Just enjoy being with the player, ask them questions and things, but try not to bother them with autographs. Don't wander table to table. And then before the event would end, we would dismiss all the players and say, you guys go fans stay behind that way they don't get bombarded and so it's my job to get these players out of there without having them attacked by all the the masses and so we had this all set up the players are dismissed i would get them back into the stadium into the clubhouse where they're safe and then we would dismiss the fans and so i, I you know i'm working hard making sure everybody's got whether i think i think i've done my job and i come back in and i see a mass of people in one giant circle i'm like ah oh. Someone didn't get out. And so I wormed my way through that crowd to get in the middle and see who it is. And it's Charlie Culberson there. And he's in the middle signing everything for everybody. And so I get all the way in and fight my way through the crowd, put my arm around him. And I say, all right, stick with me. I'm going to get you out of here. And he goes, I'm not leaving. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I can get you out. You don't have to do this all night. He goes, no, no, I, it's an, I can't believe these people want my autograph. I'm happy to sign for them. And he stood there and he signed for it everybody no at that event way. as long as they wanted him. And the funny part was his wife was there with him. So I went and found her and I said, all right, let me ask you, do you want me to get him out of here? Because you're going to be stuck here as long as she goes, that's just how he is. That's she awesome. was so used to at that point. She said, no, everywhere we go, he wants to, if they want his autograph, he's going to give it to them. And so it's just, an, it's, it's, that's a, a character trait. That's not a show. Right. He doesn't get popular. He doesn't do it for popularity. He does this because it's a, it's a relational thing. And he yeah. looks at himself and says, you know, I, I've, I have a gift and it's something I can share and bring joy to other people. You know, this is not putting me out to write my name. Right. And so it's, it's amazing. I've, he's so universally beloved. In all my years, I've never seen anybody love somebody like that that much. There's so many prima donna in sports. And we, we, we frankly now almost anticipate it, right? And frankly, we even accept it. Like, like rude behavior, rude behavior and kind of prima donna attitudes. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a, a part of it where you say a player really, and it, again, it's tough because most athletes have been revered their entire lives. Right. right. If they're always the best. Right. 
they've, they've been, been told their entire they life, kids. their entire life, they've been told right. you are a hero. Yeah. And so they f- don't feel a lot of responsibility toward that. Others of them try to balance, you know, like if I say yes to everybody, all my time will be consumed. So there has to be a line somewhere. And then you get these guys like Charlie who says, I don't care what the line is. I'm going to, I'm going to be good to people. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. All right. So now you are a Braves fanatic. I am. Are you also a baseball fanatic? Huh. Uh, yes. Yes is the right answer. Um, so when I was a kid, I collected baseball cards. And so I would learn who all the players and all the teams were by the baseball cards. Okay. And then on the flip side of the baseball card was all their stats. So I would know who everybody's stats. Uh, my routine was every morning I would get up and go out in the driveway and get the newspaper, bring it inside. I'm like, because I know what newspaper is now, but I would bring the newspaper in, pull the sports page, throw the rest away, and study the box scores. Right. So I could at any point in my scholastic career tell you what everybody in the league was hitting. I could tell you everybody on every team, not because it got me anything, but it was just you that just was what loved I did. the stats. I loved yeah. it. Um, I will say that. The 17-year-old version of me would be kind of embarrassed of me now because I'm so Brave-centric now. I can't tell you. Right. I can't name you six A's. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I knew a lot of stats when I was a kid, too. Right. I don't know any of and them. And so now. I have become very, very Brave-centric. I still uh, know the Braves at that level. I can tell you everybody who's played for all the years of the team. Uh, I, I don't know as much about other teams anymore, right. and that's a that's a time issue, yeah. time and attention. Yeah. Uh, so my, my son's... They kind of mock me now because they know more about the other teams than I do. So, <laughs> do you go out and visit other stadiums? Like, is that a thing? I mean, I know there's a lot of guys who just do that. That's that's their. Yeah, I, I've done some. Yeah, uh, I did it a lot more actually before my children were born. Right. Um, when I graduated from high school, my dad actually took me on a trip. We went to uh, Yankee Stadium, we went to Cooperstown to see the Hall of Fame, and we went to Fenway. And that was yeah. sort of our our graduation trip. Awesome. And he and I went and traveled. We saw a lot of stadiums. Um, most of them are gone now. Like right. teams of made new stadiums so often that most of the stadiums I've been to don't exist. Right. Frankly, so I, don't, I do love Fenway because of that. Fenway is still great. And Fenway and Wrigley great, are going to yeah. be around because everybody loves the history right. of them. But and Fenway is probably the, the best place I've ever seen a game. Just right. feels different than anywhere else. Yeah, it, it, And some of the seats are atrocious. Oh, yeah. I no, mean, the, 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 in, the, in the old section, I'm telling you, if you're over like 135, you don't fit in a seat. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what size people were in the 20s, but small. I, I mean, they was, it's crazy. But the, that's the gymnastics you have to go through between do we hold on to our history or do right. we go to the present like nah, everybody I'm, else? Every time I squeeze in one of those seats, I'm always glad that they're still there, though. Yeah. You know? So, no, I don't travel much anymore. I'm not a big travel guy. Right. Um, you know, whenever we talk about going on a family vacation, my sons say, well, is there a ballpark there? Maybe we'll go. They're not big travelers either. We're kind right. of a stay-at-home kind of people. Yeah. So uh, I haven't been to many parks. I don't have to travel much. Sure. Um, the last one I got to go to was Houston because we were in a World Series. Right. So that was a good excuse. Right. Yeah, I'll make that trip. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good reason. That was a pretty good it's one. It's funny, so. we're talking about collecting cards. When I was a kid, we, I'd collect baseball, and I grew up in Canada. We'd collect hockey cards as well. But me and my friend, me and my friends were growing up, we would, the bad players, we'd say they're spokes cards. Mm-hmm. And do you know what you know what that is? I know what it is. Okay, so I would put put the card inside my bicycle spokes and clip it on with, with uh, like, you know, laundry clips. Mm-hmm. And then it would make it sound like it had an engine. Sure. You know, so we, the bad players would be like, they're spokes cards. That's what we do. And then we'd drive around pretending that we had engines on our Yeah, I, I, I'd heard those stories. I knew about those kind of things. <laughs> uh, number one, I never really rode bicycles, so that wasn't an yeah. issue for me. And number two, I, I kind of knew these are going to have some value, so yeah. we're, gonna not, actually we're not going to destroy them. I, and I did. I didn't even think that way, but I wasn't going to be a historian. Either, but the so. funny thing is that cards, the, the industry got so saturated in right. the 90s 
that essentially they lost all value anyway. Yeah. And so my kids have baseball cards, but they don't collect them because they have any value. They're just, yeah. that's a picture of a guy. Yeah, so they play games with their cards now. And it, I cringe every time I see it, but I mean, it's their cards. I don't care. They do what yeah. they want, but it's kind of gone full circle now where they're back to being not, not a thing you do collect for value, right. but because you right. like what's on them. All right. So let's talk about baseball. I, I've, I've done a lot of reading over the last couple of years about the, the, about the decline in attendance at baseball games. Now, that's not true of the Braves, right. uh, but it is true of a lot of baseball stadiums. There's a lot of discussion over the speed of a baseball game. Yeah. They're even making some attempts to speed up the game. Right. Uh, Savannah Bananas uh, here in Georgia, uh, that, that I spent 15 years in Savannah, so I know these guys extremely well. Uh, we actually shared a stadium with them, the school that I worked at before. That was our that was our stadium as well. Uh, and so Jesse Cole from Savannah Bananas, I know he's he's got this thing whole thing called this called Speedball, which he actually went around and presented to every major league uh, mm-hmm. team. What are your thoughts on? Uh, and uh, you know, you're a historian, so you're, I'm guessing you're a purist. Uh, but kind of walk me through. Tell me, because I mean, this is a big point of discussion in it baseball is. right now. Yeah. So the part of the attendance decline is I can sit at home and watch the game on my 70-inch high-definition screen, and I can, I can see more angles, I can see replays, I can see instant analysis. It's a lot more convenient than going to a game. Right? No matter how great we make the facility, getting to a game, being there for the length of a, a game, and getting home is a chore. Right. And so we've always had to combat that since I've been with the Braves. Uh, we always see attendance is lower during the school year on weeknights during the school year, right? Because even though, even if we speed the game up, a game starts at 7.20, it's not, you're not getting home till midnight. Right, it's late. And so it's always been a challenge of, you know, those are what we call uh, the lowest level games. Weekends are premiums, summer are premiums. And so uh, the first way we combated that was we did dynamic pricing, where if you're going to go with the high demand games, you're going to pay more. Okay. And if you're going to go to low demand game, if you want to go see the Marlins on a Tuesday night during the school year, that's going to be a really good deal for you because the demand's lower. So that's the way we used to run to try to combat that, that process. Okay. Um, I found, we found out, the Braves found out, that the key to overcoming those obstacles is win a World Series. Yeah. <laughs> because since, since we did that in 21, uh, no it doesn't problem matter. There is no such yeah. thing as a low-level a low level game. Okay. Uh, we sold last year, it was something, we, we set a record, we, over 3 million fans. We're going to beat that this year. So the, the wave of winning World Series is not dying down. Right. Uh, we'll be at something like 98% of every ticket we put on sale is getting sold now. Wow. Uh, and Atlanta's the, a hot market, the ball pit, yeah, yeah, and and part of that is the success of the team, and part of it is the entertainment experience at the ballpark. Having the, the ballpark village around what we call Battery Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Which can, is phenomenal. You go early, and you have all the shops and entertainment right. venues and restaurants. Watch a baseball game. You go out after, and all those places fill back up. People don't go home. Mm-hmm. Now, across MLB, that's not always the case, and attendance is an issue. And so baseball has decided we need to take uh, into consideration how we're going to combat that market so that it doesn't dry up our money. Mm-hmm. And so just this year, uh, they've instituted some rule changes to help speed the game up. Now, when I heard those, I was automatically against. Right? Don't touch my game. My game's been good for 150 <laughs> years. If you don't like it, go watch something else. Don't touch the game. But that's not necessarily true. Baseball's had all kinds of rule changes in its history. Absolutely. right. Uh, and so 
what I had to work toward was, okay, we can, we can mess with the periphery, just don't mess with the heart of the game. Sure. And that's what the rule changes really have done. Um, one of the things we have is a pitch clock, mm-hmm. right? And I hated the idea of pitch clock because of all the sports, baseball is right. the one that doesn't have a clock. Baseball is the one that you're going to have to get 27 outs. It doesn't matter how long it takes. You can't run the clock out, right? You ha- like basketball, you can go four corners and right. hold the ball. Football, you know, you can take a knee. Nothing like that in baseball. You've got to get those outs. And so they haven't changed that. That has not been a part of what's been changed in the game. Uh, ultimately, the, the pitch clock takes out the dead time. Mm-hmm. So now batter can't step out and readjust his batting gloves after every pitch. Like he knows he's got to be in or he's getting a strike called on him. And that was a nuisance for like a week. Mm-hmm. And now the players are used to it mm-hmm. and they don't think about it anymore. They step out, they're right back in. And so we've cut the dead time out and we've trimmed a normal game time from over three hours down to under two and a half. And if I can cut half an hour out of that experience without changing the essence of the game, now not only do I keep the attention of a generation that doesn't have much of an attention span, Absolutely, right. but I also I can get those families home before midnight on a weeknight game day. Right? And so it speeds up everything without getting to the core of the game. And that's been universally applauded. I, I don't hear anybody anymore complaining about I've the clock. Very positive, yeah. And so that wasn't a way. It was a risk. Anytime you try to touch a game that's such um, history laden as baseball, and you want to change anything about it, you're going to get pushback from people like me. Mm-hmm. But it has worked so well that uh, the, the risk has paid off. The, the, the benefit has been huge. And um, another idea that, kind of on the flips on the business side, was if we got fans in the park less time we won't be able to sell them as much food and beverage. Mm -hmm. And so we've had to then respond to that and be, um, have some ingenuity for how we're going to make up that difference. And so we've become better at the process of selling food and beverage. Mm -hmm. We use the technology to quick pay to cut down the face-to-face time. So now we can get people in and out of lines quicker. And we found we can sell just as much as we did before. It just took a little effort to, to make up the difference. Right, right. The, the design that they did for Truist uh, with all like a live, work, play environment uh, is so unique. Uh, I, I did my undergrad fa- fairly close to where the Orioles are. And they had it, but it felt like it was part of the city, but mm-hmm. it was a, but it was an integral part of the city. So it was, that was actually cool. Like it was a really, but this takes it to such a brand new level where it really feels like one complex that has, I don't know how many restaurants, how many apartments, oh, yeah. how many condos. Like, it's just crazy. The The vibe, though, that it sets up is such a cool vibe. They do they did a, a, an amazing job. Yeah, it's, it's worked even better than anticipated. So others, other teams have done things like this. The Cardinals have a ballpark village that they built around their stadium. Mm-hmm. In old places, again, like Wrigley or in Baltimore, those stadiums are in the middle of a city block. So it's just where they had enough land to build a stadium, and it just turns out they're in a neighborhood now. That's right. Um, th- that's a tough process to, to recreate because those parks have been around so long. Right. So it doesn't really work to say, I'm going to put a, a ball field in the middle of a neighborhood. You're not really getting that land, and it's not going to work out as well because you can't control what's around you. Mm-hmm. So the Braves were the first organization to build the, the ballpark village and the ballpark at the same time as one grand vision. So the Braves, they purchased um, over 60 acres in Cobb County, all with the design of we're going to have these things. That's why it's called the Battery Atlanta, because the battery and baseball is a pitcher and a catcher that work together. Right. And so the battery is all the shops, restaurants, live, work, and play outside and the ballpark uh-huh. inside. So we're going to keep those things working together. I actually didn't know that. That's there cool. you go. And, yeah. and so uh, it's worked so well 
not only giving fans an opportunity to do other things at the ballpark, but it's a source of revenue for us. We own all that land. So every shop and restaurant and hotel that's on that property brings revenue into the team, which we can feed right back into success on the field, which drives attendance, which drives those businesses. And so that cycle works for everybody. Fantastic. But the system has worked so well, even better than we imagined it, that since we opened in 2017, we've had more than 100 different sports teams all different sports from all over the world come to see how it works. Oh, really? Because everybody that builds a stadium moving forward will do it this way. So it's really become a, a pattern. The like pattern. Example. You, you, yeah. you can't not do it this way because of the revenue stream that you'd be giving up. Fascinating. And I didn't realize, I didn't realize that they owned all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only part of the, of the battery that the Braves don't still own and manage is the, the apartments and condos. We found out pretty quickly into that. We didn't want to be in the landlord business. So okay. we built them. And sold them off as a one-time revenue stream. Uh, they're still on our property, but they don't. We don't run the day to day. Okay. But we do oversee all of the businesses and uh, restaurants, shops, hotels that are on our on our land space, and it's it's ever it's expanding. We have a whole division of the Braves now called a Braves Development Company, and that's what they do is manage that growth. That's awesome. Well, well, how's the team looking this year? Mm, we're having a really good season. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. We haven't really hit our peak. That's okay. what's really kind of fun about them. The team is. We have the best record in the National League. We have the biggest division lead, and we really feel like we haven't hit our stride yet. Mm. Um, the team is top to bottom. The lineup is loaded. Uh, we're basically, we feel pretty good about our odds of taking in our sixth consecutive division title, which would be the longest streak, active streak in baseball mm. and the second longest active streak in professional sports. Only oh, the Kansas good. City Chiefs have a streak going longer currently. Wow. I like having the historian here. This is cool. I know things. Yeah. That's really that's really neat. So 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 we haven't even hit our stride. I jumped in on my very first Stripers game a couple of weeks ago. Really enjoyed that. I have not been out to the Braves yet this year, so I've got to I've got to get out there. Uh, do you do you still go to all the games? I don't. Uh, I could. I have the opportunity to go to games, but uh, I live over here. Uh, right. We've just actually moved into Hall County, uh, and so it's about forty five miles from home. Mm-hmm. And so for me to go to a game, I would go to work drive that 45 miles, drive it home, pick up my family and drive it back, go to the game and drive it back. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So I don't go to that many games. Um, we probably go to five or six a year with, okay. my, with my family. And if that's going to happen, I'll probably take the day off and take them one, one, still one right. trip. Right, still one trip. Um, we go to all the postseason games, right? That's, I, can, I can justify that to, to everybody to make those trips. So, uh, no, we, the routine now is I will go to work during the day, come home, we will order our schedule around first pitch <laughs> and, and we sit down as a family and we watch every 162 games a year. That's awesome. You do, you guys sit down as a family, watch every single oh, game. Oh yeah. It's a, it's an announcement, right? When we get, start getting close to game time, let's not miss first pitch. Make sure everybody's settled and in their place to watch that game. That is awesome. I love that. Sam, Hey, I really appreciate you jumping on the show. You are such a, such a cool example of having a dream and now living that dream every single day. Uh, I also know you have such an active and personal faith, uh, which you carry into that realm as well. And it is so cool. It's really kind of that at the epicenter of what we do on the joy of leadership. It's that idea of finding that balance between having a calling uh, that you are really, really passionate about and also being able to exercise your faith. And so it's neat to just sit here and hear the stories and to just see how that is applied in your life. So, man, listen, I thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Joy of Leadership podcast. Living in the center of God's will is a rare blessing in today's day and age. Help us share this vital story of passionate leadership. If you would like to comment on the show, or if you know someone who would be a perfect guest, contact us at thejoyofleadership at gmail.com. If you like the show and don't want to miss a single episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.